2: Hello and welcome to Changing Politics. I'm Marie LeConte. And
0: I'm Gronya Maguire. This is the podcast where an Irish woman and a French woman talk about
2: British politics until we
0: both get deported. We'll
2: also be talking about one subject in depth and giving you a way to help fix it. Last week, we asked you to email your MPs to tell them to turn up to vote for Shaney's Law so that people with mental health challenges don't die in police custody. If you haven't done that yet, do it now. The vote is on Friday the 6th of July. Pause this and go do it. We'll wait. Done it. Good. This week, we'll be
0: explaining what you can do to help women in Northern Ireland access abortion. But before that, we need to say thank you for listening and also ask you to please subscribe and rate this podcast. And maybe even leave us a nice review, as that helps
2: other people find out about the show. We should also discuss the week's news. So I'd like to start with the incredibly shocking news that apparently. Vote Leave broke electoral law. Now you know being investigated properly by the electoral commission. Are you very shocked? I cannot believe it. I thought the calibre of the people involved in the Vote Leave campaign. <laughs> There's no way anything shady will be involved. I know, and I feel like you know, not to kind of blow my own horn, but I actually was the one who broke the story about Darren Grimes and believe that Youth Leave Wing having dodgy stuff around them. So hang on a sec. You are basically Lois Lane. This is un- unbelievable. I am. I am. <laughs> (laughs) So I did that story two years ago. It took two years for the Electoral Commission to actually, apparently, we don't have the full results yet, but apparently go, you know, actually, yeah, turns out that was dodgy. Are we being too hard on vote
0: leave? Because maybe... They just made a mistake. We know they're not very good at numbers and figures. We've seen what they put on buses.
2: (laughs) Maybe they just got confused. I feel like the levers keep going, you know, establishment conspiracy against us and everything. But it took so long for something so blatant to actually properly get investigated. So they were funneling money into a student... Organization. Yes, yeah, so it was Vote Leave gave uh, over 400k to Darren Grimes, who at the time was a student in his early 20s, but also campaigning. So it created Believe, which was the leave campaign for students, for young people. And, yeah, and so I think it was three days, four days before the date of the referendum, he got 400k from Vote Leave, which, you know, again, you kind of look at that, because I remember actually finding that, um, looking at the returns from the referendum campaigns and going, hang on, what? They what? What? That is one generous birthday present. Isn't it? Yeah, it's just nice. It's just nice, you know, he's just a nice guy and they just wanted to be like, there you go, you know, buy yourself something nice.
0: Yeah, like an election, (laughs) (laughs) like a (laughs) referendum. So what has our horny-on-main bay, Michael Cove been up to lately?
2: Literally, please do not say that. I am about to walk out of the room. This podcast is a terrible idea. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Um, but no, so, so Michael Gove was so angry at a bit of the UK government's plans for Brexit that he... And I, I absolutely adore that story because, you know, I think it's like, sources close to Gove <laughs> revealed that, you know, he was so angry about it, he'd ripped the papers in half, you know, in a meeting because he was just so furious. And then someone else who was in the room actually got in touch, I think it was Heather from The Guardian, to say that he'd actually only ripped the first page off. And so, had just stopped after that. Was he sort of trying to channel dead poet society? <laughs> Did he make the whole stand-up on chairs as well? Can I just say, very brief thing that has nothing to do with the news, but um, in my last day of high school, we had this actually like incredible literature teacher. And so a bunch of us, because we are massive nerds, decided to actually stand up on the table and do captain, my captain. He had not seen the movie, <laughs> and so he just stared at us blankly until we sat back down and ignored that it happened. Um <laughs> So that's that. Was he being like, ooh, g- 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 ooh. Exactly that. It's funny that you got that because that, that was his exact reaction. <laughs> but yes, back to the cabinet, they're, you know, just behaving like normal grown up human beings, which is just very reassuring. So, sources close to Gove, is that like. Cove's invisible friend, like his imaginary friend. It's- I love. That's one of my favourite bits of Westminster reporting. Actually, the uh, friends of X have said, "A, that's completely ridiculous." And I think there's kind of an ethical point around journalism where if someone's told you something, either completely go completely anonymous, I think, or just say, "Is that person?" B, we don't want the public to really believe that politicians have friends. <laughs> Michael Cove's. Best friend
0: forever is really worried about him. Seriously though. <laughs> He's ripping us <out> so
2: pathetic. <laughs> one full piece of paper in a rage. Wow, I hope we I hope we didn't get a paper cut. <laughs> my God. You know, he what was it? One of my favourite ghost stories was um God, there are several. So there was one on his first day at the Ministry of Justice, he locked himself in a toilet and had to be rescued. And my other favourite Gove story is Wait, when he locked himself in a toilet? On his first day as the Secretary of State for Justice in the MOJ. Wow. Yeah. And then the other one is that he once tried to unclog a toilet using a Hoover. <laughs> which I'm just going to let you, like, just give you a second to appreciate that and just that mental image, which is just just nearly intoxicating.
0: I, I think it's awful that he tore up that front page, but I'm just so glad they didn't show it in the document in it on a tablet. That would have been
2: much worse. <laughs> a lot more expensive. You got jumping on it. <laughs> stomping. No! <laughs> the more interesting kind of general point about this is that, you know, he was furious because he felt that his views were not being taken into account in this kind of negotiation, even though it had nothing to do with DEFRA. And also, you know, I kind of feel like it kind of chimes in with actually, I don't know if you saw Jacob Rees-Mogg a few days ago, basically saying, you know, do what we say or we'll topple you. And, you know, and we've got many MPs who agree with me and who would do it as well. They go to another school, you wouldn't know them. (laughs) Um, But yes, there's that weird kind of entitlement from the Brexiteers at the moment of just saying we need to be part of this negotiation at every step of the way. And if we don't agree with what you're doing, then, you know, we'll just topple you. So they've got two weeks, basically. It's not right to decide what sort of Brexit is that they want. Yep, they're going to see checkers on Friday. They're having a nice day, so I think from 9.30am till 10.30pm. And I think Theresa May has threatened that if they haven't solved it by 10.30pm, they will stay over because no one leaves checkers (laughs) until it's done, which I love. The idea of a cabinet sleepover is just... Both the best and the worst thing <laughs> in the world, as far as I can tell.
0: As long as maybe they'll just, you know, get Ouija bored out, start making <laughs> prank phone calls. Could be quite fun.
2: God, yeah, David Davis is like cup of cocoa in the corner. Uh. Oh, my God. Matt Hancock doing parkour in the corner, jumping from couch to couch. Which one is Matt Hancock again? He's the really fun one. He's DCMS. Like the Labradoran government. Is he the guy that tried to create his own Facebook website?
0: Yes, the <laughs> Matt Hancock app. <laughs> Well, as long as he doesn't slide into anybody's DMs on his Matt Hancock app. So I heard MPs have been encouraged to quit Twitter. Now, you're a bit of a Twitter superstar. Are you worried about this?
2: It's quite a grim story. I think it's like parliamentary mental health services who have told MPs, like, look, social media is taking its toll on your mental health and you're clearly very stressed, and so have told several MPs that they should consider quitting Twitter altogether. I have many thoughts on this, but I'm not entirely sure what they are yet. Um, I don't know, because I feel like Twitter has become such a massive part of the Westminster bubble and the link between, you know, the press and politicians and, you know, even like public affairs, everyone kind of in that bubble, everything revolves around Twitter now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's had some good things. So, you know, for example, I feel like as someone who didn't grow up in a very well-connected family in the UK, didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, whatever, like I feel like Twitter massively helped me, A, you know, kind of get a profile, but B, just get in touch with MPs as well. And like, Making sure that MPs knew who I was as a journalist, which obviously helps when you want to talk to them. And I do kind of worry on the long run that if Twitter is being used less, then, you know, we'll kind of go back to that bubble, which is a lot harder to get into if you're not from that kind of background or you mm-hmm. don't have those kind of connections. But that being said, it's true that the abuse problem on Twitter is massive. Because so I've had, you know, either MPs retweet my tweets or I get involved in a tweet, whatever. So I get all the notifications, all the mentions. It's absolutely appalling. Anything they tweet, even if it's like quite fun, quite silly, whatever, there will just be 20 people going, scum, scum. Mm -hmm. It's like, Jesus Christ. So Twitter is dreadful for the MPs'
0: mental health, but it's dreadful for everybody's mental health. Why should they be exempt?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, all MPs should actually be forced to be on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Tweet every day, like the whips being like, I see you haven't tweeted in 97 minutes. And if male MPs quick Twitter, who's going to be sliding into my... My DMs.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> Why do you think I favourite all them tweets? <laughs> I think I think they should stay on Twitter. I know what you're saying, that you know they do get a lot of abuse, but I think surely it's more important that Twitter does something about the abuse than we need our little our little delicate little delicate MPs. You need to look after them. At least now maybe male MPs know what it's like to be a woman for the day. That's nice.
2: I know, I know. I know my sympathy can occasionally be slightly limited of like, people are just mean and they're just, you know, they're not listening to what I'm saying and they're just being patronising, even though I know more about this than they do. And it's like, oh, interesting. (laughs) Tell me more, what's that like? Sounds bad.
0: (laughs) Besides, we want to keep them on Twitter. We don't want them. What next? Snapchat?
2: Instagram? Again, the Matt Hancock app. I think we should all move to the Matt Hancock app. You keep getting like notifications about, like, you can win like packs of sausages from West Suffolk for your barbecue and stuff. It's the best. So,
0: um, sometimes, I'm so wrong I'm right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can that work? In a job context. Well, the thing is, the current cabinet, like, this is a problem we keep having, you know, with people like Boris. Yeah, but I I guess mostly Boris. I was going to make a list of names, mostly Mm -hmm. Boris. But, yeah, no, so I think, you know, people do not get fired anymore. Esther McVeigh being quite a good example where she was shown to have misled the House a few days ago over universal credit. And so had to make a, a formal apology to the House on Wednesday after PMQs. And, yeah, you know, I feel like normally... That should either be something that would make someone resign from the cabinet or get sacked, or at the very least, you'd kind of expect some briefing from Number 10 going, you know, there's been like, a stern conversation, this will not happen again, she's on her last chance, whatever. But as far as we can tell,
0: just nothing. You can nothing. Just lie now is it like how people used to get like t b and you know consumption <laughs> <laughs> people used to get fired for lying and it'd be something that you'd have to explain to to children in history books but now. again
2: David Davis misled the house like several times not that long ago and nothing happened to him so you know why not? why not free for all free for all but again I, I kind of love the idea of like Every cabinet minister is secretly just being desperate to get sacked and go back to the backbenches. And so they're all kind of involved in the contest where (laughs) they see who can get fired and then Theresa May is like, you bunch of suckers, I am not firing (laughs) any of you. If I'm going down, you're all going down with me. (laughs) Weirdly, not the most embarrassing moment in the House of Commons involving a Secretary of State this week. (laughs) Gavin Williamson, you know, statesman, hero, basically Churchill, Mm -hmm. was speaking at the dispatch box in the chamber and uh, clearly, I think, like, Syria, like, you know, his he said something about Syria and the phone sort of, like, replied and was like, the Syrian blah, 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 blah. So he had to sort of, you know, very awkwardly kind of turn off his phone, whatever, at the dispatch box, which, A, is, yeah, incredibly awkward. But also, B, I'm kind of like, do you have voice activated stuff on your phone, which means that your phone is always listening while being defence secretary <laughs> of the United <laughs> Kingdom? It, I
0: I think it will be fine, I do think it's bad that maybe he'd already been asking, where
2: is Syria? (laughs) (laughs) Syria facts. (laughs) So another actual good news, uh, the government is banning gay conversion therapy, um, which is obviously sort of like, especially kind of uh, religious um, organisations trying to pray the gay way and trying to convince of gay people they're actually straight, which, you know, has shown that it's, like, um a, a lot of journalism has been done on this and it's all kind of like horrifying but you yeah, know it will officially be made illegal which i think is a step in the right direction isn't it and this is
0: the result of a uh, fantastic work by another journalist Patrick Strudwick he experienced the gay conversion therapy in inverted commas and he's still traumatised for years afterwards that sounds absolutely horrific
2: it does sound yeah I think you know if you're listening to this you should actually read what he wrote on the topic he said even as someone who was kind of like out and proud and had been out for a long time and was comfortable in his life he came out of that just completely like broken so you can only imagine what it do to people in a Much more vulnerable position.
0: And little known fact about me, I'm the opposite. I've been known to turn men homosexual. Little superpower that I have.
1: (laughs) Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content
0: So we're going to talk about abortion laws in Northern Ireland. Woo, hooray. Finally, a cheery subject. Marie, do you know much about Northern Ireland?
2: You know what? I'd like to say, so no, I don't, but I tried. like Literally, <laughs> so last Christmas, I was home with my parents. I was quite bored. And I was like, you know what? It is like it is a shame that I've been in the UK for eight years. I know very little about Northern Ireland and Ireland and the troubles and everything that happened. So it's like, OK, I'm going to watch a documentary. I've got nothing better to do. It's Christmas, treat yourself. I know, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I found a documentary on YouTube that sounded good. And as I you know, started watching it, I was like, OK, I'm going to find out because I wanted something as well not too recent, you know, so I could get mm. a proper like context. And then the documentary starts and it goes, you know, and our story starts in 10,000 BC. <laughs> So I weirdly know, like, a fair bit about the very, very ancient history now, the Vikings. But uh, then I got bored. So, I'm yeah, that stopped like uh, kind of 2000 BC. Oh, I won't tell you what, I'll, no spoilers, <laughs>
0: but some amazing oxbow lakes built up, let me tell you. <laughs> So, how much would it surprise you that they don't have the same laws as the rest of the United Kingdom?
2: So, I feel like it's something I'm sort of like vaguely aware of as a concept, but I don't actually really know the detail on that. They do have very strict rules that are
0: totally
2: divergent from the
0: UK, particularly in social matters. So in Northern Ireland still there's no equal marriage. Gay consensual sex was legalised 15 years after the rest of the United Kingdom, as recently as 1982. It's not just gay people that Northern Ireland have a problem with. Don't worry ladies, you're not, not missing out on any of that bigotry. They also are big into denying abortion rights. Now, luckily, abortion rights is an issue that unites both sides of Northern Ireland's communities. Everyone hates women. Woo! (laughs) It's basically the Northern Irish remake of Everybody Loves Raymond. (laughs) But instead of running for 10 series, it's been running for about 300 years. Do you know when abortion was legalised in the United Kingdom?
2: Uh, Yeah, in 1967, right?
0: Correct. This is the grimmest version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? (laughs) You're through to control of your own body. (laughs) Do you know when it was legalised in Northern Ireland?
2: I'm guessing from the way it was asked, there was maybe a bit of a delay. So let's say 69. Nice. (laughs)
0: It's quite a delay because it still hasn't happened yet. Fucking hell. The 1967 Abortion Act was never extended to Northern Ireland which means that the law which currently governs abortion in Northern Ireland is the Offences Against the Persons Act of 1861 Not nice So the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 Here's some fun facts You can get a three month Custodial sentence for Assault with intent to obstruct The sale of grain That is a very serious crime
2: (laughs) I I am glad that we're talking about
0: this (laughs) Although, strictly speaking, abortion isn't legal in the UK either. This is an issue that Labour MP Stella Creasy has been campaigning a lot about, and we spoke to her about it.
3: One of the myths we have to dispel is that abortion is legal in the United Kingdom, because it's not. All that happened in 1967 in this country is that exemptions were given for prosecution. Uh, what it is in the United Kingdom is that you as a woman can ask, in England and Wales rather, and, and in Scotland, and common law laws are similar, you can ask a doctor for an abortion and if the doctor and another doctor agree, then you can be exempted from prosecution. They don't have those exemptions in Northern Ireland. So in Northern Ireland, it is technically true that if you are raped and you become pregnant as a result of that rape and you seek a termination, you could in theory face a longer prison sentence than the person who attacked you.
0: Northern Ireland does have the 1945 Infant Preservation Act, which permits terminations to preserve the life of the mother, but that is strict. That only permits abortion if a woman's life is at risk or there is a permanent or serious risk to her mental or physical health. That criteria doesn't include fatal fetal abnormalities,
2: rape or incest. So if you can only get abortions in like those kind of very specific circumstances what does that mean practically? Well in the UK about 16%
0: of pregnancies end in termination whereas in Northern Ireland it's 0.06%. Jesus. And it's not about the numbers it's the fact that there's a part of the United Kingdom in this day and age where women do not have control over what happens to their body. They do not get to decide for themselves whether to continue with a pregnancy or not. And if they decide they don't want to, they're forced to travel, which they shouldn't have to for just healthcare.
2: So what are we doing about this? Like what what is, what is
0: happening around this? Well, there are charities doing amazing work to help women from Northern Ireland and Irish women to get abortions. Um, I had an interview with Mara Clark, who helped set up the Abortion Support Network.
1: I started doing this work in the US when I read an article in the Village Voice about how women would find out they were pregnant and they would need an abortion, but they'd go to the doctor and the doctor would say, it's $500, and they'd say, well, I don't have that. So they'd go home and work some extra shifts and pull some money together, come back a month later. Now it's 650. So then they'd go maybe sell the car, pawn their wedding ring, whatever, you know, whatever they had, come back, and they would say, oh, sorry, you're in Pennsylvania, we only go to 16 weeks, and you're 16 weeks one day, so you have to go to New York, where it's $2,000, and it's a two-day outpatient procedure, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, wait, what? But abortion's legal. What? (laughs) So for me, it was the penny dropped. I was like, so if I lived somewhere, and I didn't have money, I would have to have a baby I didn't want or couldn't take care of? What? So I got involved with a group there that was providing overnight accommodation to women coming to New York for second trimester abortions. So when I moved here, I looked to see if there was similar work. And I was told, oh, there used to be a group of Irish women helping Irish women. That was the Irish Women's Abortion Support Group from 1980 until 2000. But then I was told, oh, that's not necessary anymore, because now we have Ryanair and the internet so and credit cards. So uh, it's not needed at all. But um, every year, the Department of Health was showing that 5,000 women were giving Irish or Northern Irish or Manx addresses at UK clinics. And you know, if 5,000 are coming, then there's 500 or 50 or 5 who aren't coming because they don't have the money. And all of that is a very long way of saying that we decided that I can't afford an abortion shouldn't be the only reason somebody has a baby.
2: Okay, but you know, maybe I'm just being overly positive, you know, because... Even Northern Ireland is outdated on abortion, surely things are changing. You know, like Ireland just repealed the 8th, so isn't the news generally good on abortion? Well, except change
1: is very slow and progress isn't linear. Repealing the 8th did not make abortion legal in Ireland. Repealing the 8th just took away the bit of the Constitution that gives a woman and a fetus an equal right to life, which impacted not only abortion, but every stage of pregnancy. So the 8th has been repealed, And the law that stands at the minute is the law that allows abortion to save a woman's life. And that is the law that it took Ireland 22 years to make after they were told they had to. 22 years to pass what is called the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act, which is the law that brought us the Miss Y case, which is when they took a teenage raped refugee who tried to kill herself and went on hunger strike when she found out she was pregnant and they delayed her for so long because she had to prove how suicidal she was that they delivered her by cesarean section at 25 weeks shortly after her 18th birthday. So that's the current law.
0: Cool. (laughs) It's cheery. It's very cheery.
1: And we had two clients both try and kill themselves twice, both be told that they weren't suicidal enough. So it's it's a garbage law. But that is the law that they have. So first, they have to make a law. Then they have to find doctors who know how to do abortions. (laughs) Then they have to find doctors who are willing to do abortions. The quickest any country has ever gone from legislation to provision is 18 months. And that was Portugal.
2: But I think, I guess the thing is, you know, and I've had several people make that argument before, is that, you know, it is a devolved matter. And, you know, like devolution, I think there's always concerns about kind of Westminster overstepping and doing this, So you know. Should Westminster really force them to do anything like this? I put that question about the issue of
3: devolution to Stella, and here's what she said. What the government will say to you now is this is a devolved matter. Of course, some of us who think it's a fundamental human rights matter recognise, especially with the Good Friday Agreement, that you don't devolve human rights. Women's rights shouldn't be something that are politically expedient to give to somebody else. Also, I think what makes their position unsustainable is we've seen similar exemptions around same-sex marriage for example and actually in the last year the government has said well if the legislature in the UK were to bring forward legislation about extending same-sex marriage to Northern Ireland we would give MPs a free vote and when I asked the same question about abortion they said oh no 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 it's a devolved matter and you said well hang on a minute why is it that gay rights are something that are universal and something we feel we should protect but women's rights are not that's you can't be selective when it comes to the campaigns for equality. I'd I'd like to see both as a matter of record and I will campaign and and work alongside people to achieve both. But I think what we've seen historically is that Northern Ireland's political system has been behind where its public is and so when it's come to political decisions about legislation around human rights and equalities issues, there's been a kind of well, we'll we'll exempt them rather than actually listening and working with people on the ground. That has to change.
2: But so like historically, has there been a major party like properly fighting for this or like to change things from Westminster Well sadly neither party has really been
0: great on this one In 2008 there was a chance to extend the Abortion Act to Northern Ireland but the Labour Government at the time did a deal with the DUP in exchange for their support in extending the time of detaining terrorists without charge to 42 days But hey Thank goodness no other government would be stupid enough to do a deal with the DUP after that. Am I right? Also, the law is just really murky. In 2016, a Belfast woman who bought drugs online to terminate her pregnancy, as she had no access to a legal abortion, was given a suspended sentence. And up until recently, women from Northern Ireland were not entitled to abortions on the NHS in England, meaning they had to travel over to Britain and pay for it out of their own pocket. Thankfully, recently a law was passed changing that. Now Northern Irish women can get a free abortion once they travel over to Britain. Yep, totally free. I mean, apart from the airfare and accommodation and taking time off work and the fact that their taxes pay towards the NHS in the first place. But apart from that, it's just completely
1: free. So we give information on the least expensive way to arrange abortion and travel. Which is more than just about money. Because people are like, oh, you can just travel. Um, sure, if you have money and a passport and uh, secure residential status. Um, we are the people who can tell you what airline you can fly without a passport. Flybe, for instance, firearms permit. I love that. <laughs> I want to get a gun just so I can show my firearms permit to get on a plane. You know, we also know who can help you process a visa. Quickly because the cost of an abortion goes up about doubles at 14 weeks and about triples at 19 weeks. You know, we know okay, if you live in this part of Ireland, even though you're near an airport, that airport only has flights every other day at three o'clock in the afternoon, so you'd have to stay over for three days. Whereas if you could get to Dublin, you come to Dublin in the afternoon, fly overnight, stay with one of our people, go to the clinic in the morning, fly out the next night. It's less than three days. It's still not ideal. We know what time of day to take your methadone. If you happen to be a heroin addict, We know things. We know all, you know, I know if you are from Moldova and living in the Republic of Ireland, that you need a visa to come to England, but you don't need a visa to go to any country that France used to own.
2: Christ, this is so depressing. Like Women are just generally treated like second class citizens in a part of the UK. Like That's genuinely mad.
0: Yes, but even despite this, there are people doing really, really good work, like Mara.
1: And she has good days too, I promise. There's so much joy in people calling a group of, okay, our our organization isn't all women, but our, our Helpline is. We've actually never had a man apply. But there's so much joy because when somebody calls and they say, I need help, and we say, okay, we'll help you. And it's kind of amazing. And the two things that Helpline volunteers come back to me with after their first or second shift is, well, you always say there's no such thing as a typical, a typical client, and I never believe you. Now I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing they say is what surprised me the most was the laughter. There is joy to just helping somebody in this very practical, immediate way.
2: Okay, I'm actually quite cheerful again. This was you know, this was quite encouraging. So what can we do to help? Well, I let Mara field that question.
1: First of all, Abortion Support Network is a tiny charity and all of our money comes from private individuals. So if you have a fiver or a tenner, we will take it off you gladly and we will spend it well. We can stretch a penny further than anybody. Also, if you're interested in what's going on, you should really follow Alliance for Choice or uh, the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign because they are both uh, the, the groups that, you know, so Alliance for Choice has been campaigning in Northern Ireland for many years. And the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign is local and they have um, chapters all over England. As brilliant as that is, the law needs to change. Here's Stella Creasy
3: on what you can do to make that happen. What we need is two things. One is a piece of legislation that we can do that in. Two, we need people to vote for it. So in order to get that piece of legislation, we need... I mean, the piece of legislation I've been looking at is the domestic abuse bill. Um, We need that to be brought forward to Parliament. Now, the government promised this piece of legislation in the Queen's Speech You know, there's other legislation they promised in the Queen's Speech that has not just been published in draft, but has gone through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So they are dragging their feet on this. They're making noises about bringing that piece of legislation in sometime May, June next year, which is curiously after uh, the Brexit deadline (laughs) and when they may or may not need the support of the DUP. I I, I have no idea why that would be the case. It seems complete coincidence that they need three years to write a piece of legislation that they've been telling us that they've got in their pocket. There's an added urgency to this, which of course is the Supreme Court ruling said it breached human rights situation in Northern Ireland, but also said that because it was the Northern Irish Human Rights Commission that had brought the case, they weren't the direct victims of this policy and therefore they couldn't force the government to change the policy. So we're in a position now where if the government doesn't bring forward that piece of legislation, a rape victim will have to go to court to vindicate her rights or basically have to take the government to court to say, we've got a ruling, I now need to enforce it none of us mm-hmm. want that. So it's better for listeners to contact the Home Secretary. Or should yeah. they contact the local MP as well? Or is it they, they should ask their local MP also to help contact the Home Secretary and say, look, come on, we all know we've got to deal with this. Everybody gets the difficulties of politics of so the DUP obviously propping up the government. But this is a human rights violation. And if the alternative is that they are forcing a rape victim to go to court and have to say what has happened to them... This is the 21st century. i would said it in Parliament. This is not Gilead. You know, it shouldn't be that we force women to go through this. We should be equals, and you can't be equals if you can't control your own body. Thank you, Stella. Blessed be the fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Under his eye.
2: (laughs) And that's it for the week. Next week, we'll be saying silly things about the news, as well as looking at what you can do to help refugees. Yes, all of them. Please do rate review and subscribe
0: to Changing Politics wherever you get it from and follow us on Twitter at ChangingPaulPod and like us on Facebook at
2: facebook.com/changingpaul to find out more. See you next week.
3: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?